Uh, good morning. I couldn't sleep last night for part of the night, and I got up and I thought, well, I'll just read one of my sermons, and that will put me back to sleep. <laughs> and I looked at a sermon that I preached here uh, a year ago this week. And it was on the Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law, and then later that night, he healed a multitude who came to the home, and um, the whole message was about healing and the Lord's care and comfort for his people. I did not realize that week that I preached it, that I was preaching to myself about what was about to happen to me. And uh, it was later that week, I fell off a roof and uh, started the whole journey of eight surgeries on my foot and the discovery of cancer again and all that has happened this past year. So I looked at it and I thought, you know, this is very comforting to me. <laughs> and so I did fall asleep. But this morning we are further ahead in the book of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 18. And let's read the passage together. It is uh, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So the next topic addressed by the Lord in Matthew has to do with sins committed by one believer against another believer. And the context has to do with conflict between believers, not unbelievers. An attempt to resolve the sin should take place, first of all, brother to brother or sister to sister, um, but if the two parties cannot settle the issue, they must take further steps to reach a biblical resolution. So there really are four steps here. We're going to look at them one by one. Um, and let's first of all look at the beginning of the conflict. Um, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Now, we don't know what the sin is um, that is taking place between the two brothers, possibly uh, in fellowship in the same local uh, assembly, but they've run into a conflict with each other. One brother sins against the other, and if it's not dealt with quickly, it can soon turn into World War III. In his epistle, James uh, writes... Oh, he actually calls this kind of a conflict um, wars and fights. Now, the sin could be anything. We know from biblical history that many wrongs have occurred between believers in the church. We sometimes think 
as we look back at the uh, early church that, well, they had no problems. Everything was just fine. It's only the later church that has uh, suffering problems. But I want to remind you of just some of the conflicts that are known to have taken place between believers in the early church. So first of all, uh, the Roman church. Paul writes to the Roman, to, in Romans to the Roman church, and there were disputes among the believers there over not what we call non-essential issues like eating certain kinds of meat or observing certain uh, religious days and so on. And it really created trouble within the church. That, and it, this trouble had to be resolved. In the Corinthian church, believe it or not, there were lawsuits uh, between brothers. Brothers and sisters, instead of resolving their issues uh, between each other, would actually say, I'm taking you to court. See you in court next Monday or whatever it happened to be. But lawsuits were, were prominent enough that Paul had to address this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Some were committing serious sins against other believers, and I'm just going to read a list. Contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults, uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness, which they have practiced. And we know one of the grossest sins uh, recorded in the Corinthian church was that a man had an immoral relationship with a woman who was either his mother or his stepmother. Uh, that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And no one in the church stood up against this sin. They just embraced it. And uh, they were a permissive, tolerant, and inclusive church, inclusive of all evil. Sounds almost like uh, today in the churches. The Galatian church is another example. They had many problems, including false teaching. Uh, they turned salvation by grace alone into salvation by grace plus law-keeping. And it was a, a doctrinal error that would lead people astray. It would lead people to hell, actually. Um, even someone as great as the apostle Peter uh, was acted in hypocrisy by distancing himself from eating with Gentiles when Jews from Jerusalem came to the church at Antioch. His hypocrisy stumbled Barnabas and others who watched him, and Paul had to rebuke him to his face because of his sin. Also, in that same church, some committed fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissension, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. You think, wow, <laughs> what is going on? Some were conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The Philippian church also had its problems. There were two women, uh, two godly women who were not acting in a very godly way. They had labored in the gospel with the Apostle Paul and were now in fellowship at the church in Philippi, and they could not get along. Again, the reason for the conflict is not stated. We just know that there was a conflict. And Paul implored these women to learn to get along with each other. And it's interesting that he did not suggest, as so many do today, well, let's just agree 
to disagree. I hate that phrase. I absolutely hate it. Let's just agree to disagree. And Paul did not suggest that. He implored them to agree, period. And so that's, we're going to look at that a little bit later. There are so many sins that one believer can commit against another believer. Um, and the fact is that when a believer does commit a sin against you or commits a sin that uh, will affect the church, someone must correct that believer quickly or his sin can have a destructive impact on the local church. The goal in any correction is to bring the sinning believer back into fellowship with the one he sinned against and back into fellowship with the Lord. Any sin breaks fellowship between believers and it certainly breaks fellowship between the believer and the Lord. COVID-19 actually provides a perfect illustration for us. In late 2019, someone, likely in Wuhan, China, became infected with COVID, the COVID-19 virus. Now, I'm not going to sit here and, and speculate how it happened. There's enough of that going on in the media. But someone became ground zero for the infection. That one person spread the virus to one or more other people. And now, in just over a year, there are over 124 million worldwide cases reported. And I don't think that number is accurate. I think it's much more than that. One man's infection has caused nearly 2.7 million deaths. What if we could rewind all of 2020, go back to that date in 2019, and actually see that person, know that he is infected, and quarantine the original COVID-19 carrier, cure him, and stop the spread of the virus at ground zero? Wouldn't that be wonderful? It would have kept over 100 million people from suffering, not to mention their families. It would have spared the heartache of 2.7 million families whose loved ones died uh, during this pandemic. Hundreds of millions of people would not have lost their jobs. Governments would have saved trillions of dollars in pandemic costs. Through one person, all of the sorrow, grief, suffering, and death has come upon the earth. In Matthew chapter 18, the man who sins becomes ground zero uh, for what could prove to be a worldwide disaster for the church. Look how fast the virus has spread in the world. And the same thing applies to sin in a person's life. Do you know that there are divisions in the church today that exist because of one man's false teaching? There are splits in the church that have never been resolved even after a hundred years or more. In fact, some divisions have been festering in the church for hundreds of years because of one man's false teaching. They begin with one man, and just like the virus, they spread all over the world. We can't simply ignore sin in the church. We must deal quickly with it, or it will destroy a local assembly, or it may have a much broader impact on churches worldwide. So how do you handle 
a sinning brother? How do you handle sin uh, like this? The story begins with a brother who has sinned against you. What is the sin? It's interesting, the Bible doesn't tell us. It's silent on what the sin is, and it allows for any sin. It doesn't matter what the sin is. It has to be dealt with in the same way. We don't know, and hopefully that sin in the scenario that is presented to us in this passage will remain a secret between the two brothers, the one who sinned and the one who was sinned against. And, uh, and hopefully it will be resolved between the two of them so that no one else ever needs to know. So there are several steps in connecting, or correcting sorry, a sinning brother. With each step, the level of seriousness rises. So let's look at step one first. Again, back to Matthew 18, 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So in the scenario, your brother or sister sins against you, the Lord does not give you the option of ignoring the sin and just pretending like it never happened. He calls upon each of us to initiate corrective action. Step one is the responsibility of every single believer in the church. You are responsible for dealing with the sinning brother. And here is how you are to handle the situation. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 actually gives us a, a great um, pattern for handling this. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted." The goal in this correction is to win back that brother or sister uh, back to fellowship with you and back to fellowship with the Lord. So let's look at some examples of how this might play out in real life. The sin. If we look at the Corinthian church, the active sins included contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, Conceit, tumults, uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness. That's a, that's a pretty big list. In Galatians, there's a similar list to that. In fact, it, it expands it a little bit. Um, and so it includes everything from gossip and slander to fornication. That's a broad list of sins um, that can be, need to be corrected. Who is the one who initiates the correction? You. If you've been sinned against, you're to initiate the uh, corrective action. It's your spiritual responsibility to deal with the sinning brother or sister. What is the method? Well, you are to tell him his fault privately. You are to go to him, and it's to be between you and him alone. Now, the temptation for all of us is to be sinned against and for me to go tell my wife and for me to go tell my children, or for me to go and tell the other elders, or for me to go and tell everybody else, but never deal with the sinning brother or sister. And so that's forbidden. The issue here is very clear. We are to, the method is clear, we are to go and speak to that brother or sister personally, individually, privately. It should remain that way. 
the biblical mandate, some verses that uh, may help you understand what you're doing. Uh, James chapter 5, for example, 19 and 20. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Do you realize that by you going to this brother or sister, you are, you are preventing the virus from spreading? That's really what you're doing. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So what is the goal in all of this? The goal is that your brother or sister will hear you. They will listen to what you have to say. Second, that he will repent of his sins. That's, that's assumed in this passage, that that, that is the, the goal, and that you will win your brother back. All sins against you, even sins as grievous as adultery, fornication, slander, outbursts of anger, can be resolved on a one-on-one basis. All of them can. They never have to become public knowledge if the sinning brother or sister repents at this stage, at this phase. But what about sins that a brother or sister commits, but not necessarily against you personally? Last Sunday, Howard noticed that uh, I was wearing my mask incorrectly. And uh, I had the mask like this, but it was actually like this. So my nose was not covered properly. It had slipped below my nose. And he jokingly said to Matt, uh, Matt, could you please call the Fremont Police Department and have Don arrested for not wearing his mask properly? Now, he was kidding, of course. At least I hope he was. But how many of you, just show of hands, how many of you have already been told this past year um, to wear a mask or to wear your mask correctly? Okay? A few of you have. Most of you have, probably. It seems that everyone on the planet has now been inducted into the mask police department. And when I have been careful, careless and uh, someone kindly corrects me for improper wa- mask wearing, I don't mind that. Uh, that's okay. We were in Hawaii uh, a week or so ago and uh, we went to a shave ice uh, uh, store or place. And when I got up to the counter... They're all covered with plastic and everything else like that. But the guy behind the counter said, Sir, could you just lift your mask up? It has slipped below my nose again. I have a big nose, and I guess it keeps slipping down below it. And so, um, but the way he asked it, I was fine with it. it was, he was polite, and he was just trying to protect the other employees. But what really bothered some of us is that uh, at the place we were staying, the requirement was that if you leave your condo and you walk to the pool, that distance, uh, during, during the walk of that distance, you have to wear a mask. And you have to wear it once you walk into the pool area, but if you get in the pool or the hot tub or you're lounging out there, you can take your mask off. And uh, there, several of us were walking over to the um, pool area, and a lady came by on one of those golf cart you know, maintenance uh, buggies 
And uh, she rebuked people in our group, put on your mask, you're not wearing a mask. And we looked at her and basically, we almost said, physician, heal yourself, because she wasn't wearing a mask either. That bothers me. Um, it seems that everyone feels the need to be the mask police today. But sin is a lot more serious than faulty mask wearing. And although we may not like the methods of the mask patrol, our biblical responsibility is to watch out for our brothers and sisters, for their spiritual health and for the local church's purity. So if you see your brother or your sister sinning, tell them their sin. Tell them their sin alone. We should speak up against sin, even if the sin is not specifically directed against us. All sin is against the church's purity. For example, suppose a single brother starts dating an unsaved woman, and he tells you about his interest in marrying her. How would you respond? Marrying an unsaved woman is, forbidden, is a forbidden relationship in the New Testament. We read, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. How would you respond? Would you respond like Samson's father did to his son? And he said to Samson, isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you could marry? Why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. And so his whole approach, as we know the story of Samson, is all he could think about. She looks good to me. I don't care about anything else. What would you do? What would you say? Suppose you share with a sister that you just landed a new job. And in a burst of excitement, she exclaims, exclaims OMG. I'm not even going to say the words out loud. Okay, and it doesn't mean goodness when you get to the G part. And Christians today say this without thought. I hear it all the time. And they are literally taking the name of God in vain when they say that. How would you respond? Would you teach your sister? Would you correct her to say, you know what, that's really not an appropriate phrase. I remember when I was a younger believer, and I made a comment, I, I stated a phrase that I had heard, which I thought fit in the conversation. I won't tell you what it is, but I had a brother who lovingly came alongside of me and he says, brother, do you understand what that phrase means? I tried to explain what I thought it meant, and he says, no, that doesn't mean that at all. And then he explained what it meant, and I said, oh, <laughs> I am so sorry. So I was glad that he corrected me because I would have carried on saying that phrase probably the rest of my life. Or you're out with some brothers and one of them suggests, hey, let's go out to a, uh, an immoral movie tonight and then let's follow that by a trip to the bar. How would you respond to that in real time? What would you personally say to the brother who made the suggestion? And then if you agree to go with him or you laugh it off, Paul says your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? God calls us to holiness. The Lord says, be holy, for I am holy. 
Purity is to be practiced both inside the four walls of the church building and in our daily lives as well. What you do in private does affect the whole church. So all of these illustrations belong to step one of church discipline. But you might say, well, honestly, Don, is it really essential to correct other believers? Why does it matter? What difference does it make? Somebody else can take care of it. Well, I want to read a story to you, and I hope it will convince you that God wants his church to be holy, and that even something as simple as deceit, a lie, just fudging the truth a little bit, needs to be addressed. You know, I want you to know that the goal of the Lord Jesus is to cleanse his church by his word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So here's the story. You know it, you've heard it before, Acts chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your, in, in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young man arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young man came in and found her dead and carried her out, buried her next, uh, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Simple deceit, fudging the truth. That's all this was. And yet look at how the Lord dealt with it as a warning to the whole church that God takes sin seriously in his church. Step one is a critical starting point. Meet with the sinning brother alone. Apply the word directly to the situation. Appeal to him to repent and return to the Lord. And if he responds well, well, guess what? You've won your brother back to the Lord. Step two. If step one does not work, then you must proceed with step two. And it's found in verse 16. But if he will not hear... Take with you, <clears throat> excuse me, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So, this principle of taking witnesses is actually found first in the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. And there we read, 
one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So bringing in two or three witnesses provides a safeguard for the accused against a false accusation, and the witnesses establish the truth of the allegation if the person is guilty. So it's a safety net, or it's a safeguard uh, both ways, both against the accused and against the accuser. The goal in step two is exactly the same as step one, and that is to meet with the sinning brother, apply the word of God directly to the situation, appeal to him to repent, and, and to return to the Lord. If he responds well, you've won your brother back to the Lord. And if that ha- happens, the discipline has met its goal, and the, and the sin is never exposed to the rest of the church. The purpose of discipline is always restorative. It's not punitive. The point is not to punish people, but it is rather to bring them back into a right fellowship with each other and with the Lord. As I mentioned earlier, there were two godly women in the church at Philippi who were acting in an ungodly way. They were not getting along, and it became a problem in the church. Philippians 4, 2-3 tells their story. The reason for the conflict in this case, is also unknown. But uh, step one is when Paul says, I implore Eudia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Sisters, agree. That's what he is saying. But apparently step one failed. So Paul calls for step two. And he says in the same passage, and I urge you also, true companion, we don't know who true companion is, Help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, so that's the second person, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so Paul encourages two or three witnesses to get involved to resolve this conflict between these two women. We assume that the women humbled themselves and put down their weapons, and they served the Lord happily thereafter. Paul appeals to the Corinthian church to stop the lawsuits. What on earth are you doing? Uh, Paul was asking them. Corinth sounds a little bit like the USA, honestly. A very litigious society. And they seem to be slow about resolving issues privately, but quick to take the brothers and sisters to the court steps. Paul rebukes them for this practice and says in 1 Corinthians 6, 5 through 8, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Interestingly, in these verses, Paul states that it would be better to suffer wrong 
it would be better to be cheated out of what is rightfully yours than to take your brother to court and sue them. The case should be heard by godly brethren and resolved. But even if the case is not resolved to your liking, you would be better off just saying, you know what, brother, I forgive you anyway. I'm I'm just going to eat the loss. I'm going to suffer the loss, and I'm going to pray as Jesus did, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Step three. What happens if step one and step two fails? The brother won't listen to you. He won't repent when lovingly confronted by two or three witnesses. What happens next? Step three is found in verse 17, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. So since the sinning brother has failed to repent, his case is then presented to the church. The brother who was sinned against brings with him the two or three witnesses who heard the case and presents it to the church. Now, when it says the church here, we believe that it means that it is presented to the elders of the church who represent the whole congregation, not to the entire body at this stage. Um, Our practice is to meet with the brother who has sinned and appeal to him to repent of his sin. He has issued a severe warning about the consequences of his sin and his lack of repentance. We will show him appropriate scripture that applies to his sinful behavior. Sometimes when we have met with individuals who are at this stage of church discipline, we have given them a limited period of time to allow for appropriate repentance uh, for restoration or even for restitution. A person may be in an immoral relationship and they may need to go and break it off. If they're truly repentant, they will break off that immoral relationship or to pay back stolen money or goods. The point is at that point, stage, we are looking for, if the person is saying they're repentant, we're looking for fruit of repentance. And if it's not there, then there is no repentance. So the goal at this stage, at this step, is to get them to listen to the elders, to repent of his sins, and to win the brother back to the Lord. It's the same for every step. First step, second step, third step. It's all the same to bring about repentance and a restoration and fellowship. If the brother or sister refuses to listen to the church, that is the elders, then there is no other alternative other than going to step four. And step four is found at the end of verse 17. But if he refuses to even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. All previous steps have failed. The brother is still unrepentant. He refuses to listen to the one who came to him first. He refuses to listen to the one who came to him first, now with witnesses. He refuses and scorns the elders' counsel. Worse, he defies the the word of God and demonstrates that he would rather embrace his sin than to be in fellowship with God and the believers. And so the elders tell that brother that he will be Discipline, excommunicated uh, from the church. In the church at Corinth, there was an unrepentant man who was in an immoral relationship, as I mentioned, with his mother or his stepmother. We're not sure which it was, but it was his father's wife. So either his real mom or his 
uh, dad's um, second wife. In the law, in Leviticus 20.11, it says this, The man who lies with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Now, we are not calling for killing this brother, but it shows the, the Old Testament shows the seriousness with which God viewed this kind of horrendous sin. And it should be looked at the same way in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, Paul deals with this issue and literally rebukes the church for their openness and embracing of this sin. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as it is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and, not, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already, for I indeed, I should say, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done so, him who has so done this deed." In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It is a solemn thing for a church to discipline one of its members. The elders cast out the person as a heathen and tax collector. In other words, he is to be treated as though he is an unbeliever because he's acting like an unbeliever. He is not acting like he's in fellowship with, with other Christians and he is certainly not acting like he's in fellowship with the Lord. And so he's to be treated as an unbeliever, an outsider to the church. He cannot remain in happy fellowship in the church while practicing his sin. He is acting like an unbeliever, and in this case, he is acting worse than an unbeliever. So the elders of the local church must act according to the word of God, and when they do, they have authority given by God to bind or loose a person. When the elders follow the scripture, they can declare that a person is no longer in fellowship in the local church and that no saint should continue to keep company with the sinning brother. The elder's judgment binds the sinning brother and the saints must adhere to the disciplinary actions. The saints are to cut off fellowship with the brother and they are not even to eat with one who is excommunicated. The person is considered evil, and as such, we are to avoid them. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13 says this, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside, in other words, unbelievers? 
Do you not judge those who are inside, those who are believers? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. We are to pray for that person. We are to plead with the Lord that he might bring him to repentance and that he might restore him to himself. And it may be tough emotionally to, um, to act this way, especially if the person is a close friend or a relative, a family member. And I know from personal experience how tough this can be. But Hebrews 12, 11 says this, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. But there is joy if that brother comes back in repentance. The elders have the authority to declare that that sinning brother has repented and has been restored to fellowship, is loosed from Satan's bondage, and that the saints can now resume their fellowship with the broken and repentant brother, welcoming him back in love and grace. As the elders act in the fear of the Lord, Jesus said in verse 18, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so God, in this, in this verse, it tells us that God recognizes that the elders have acted on his behalf to exercise discipline or to restore a repentant believer. The purpose of discipline is still restorative, not punitive. It, is also, it also serves to purify the church. And you say, well, what happens in a church that is so small it only has two elders? I mean, really, do they have that authority? And so in the context of Matthew 18, I know we use this verse to talk about, you know, how the Lord is with even a small group of people. But in the context, it refers to the actions of elders in discipline in the church. Jesus answers the question about what about if there are only two elders in verses 19 and 20. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. It seems that the church at Corinth finally did the right thing and excommunicated the man for his sin. The church realized that their permissive, tolerant, and inclusive attitude was not from God, which led them to accept some of the vilest forms of sin. One of the hardest things that an elder ever has to do is to put someone out of fellowship. It is heart-wrenching to have to do that. Our heart's longing is that the person, at the time they meet with us, will see the seriousness of their sin and they will repent and return to the Lord. But some harden their hearts. And church discipline is the only alternative. And I will tell you from personal experience that I wept almost every night for my daughter while she was away from the Lord. It's heart-wrenching. 
The prodigals, I used to get up in the middle of the night and I would go out to my balcony or to the window, depending on the season, and I would look for her coming down the street, never see her. Went on for years. <laughs> and I often thought about the prodigal's father who did the same thing, looking for the prodigal to finally return to uh, fellowship with the family. And the prodigal son's father looked and longed, and finally his prayer was answered when he saw his son walking down that dusty road towards the home. And he ran out to meet him and embraced him. I'm sure the kid smelled awful, you know. He was feeding pigs, and I'm sure he hadn't bathed in a long time. Sometime after the man was put out of fellowship at Corinth, he finally did repent of his sin. And here is how the church should respond when a sinning brother returns to the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we believe this is a reference to this passage. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. What happens when a sinning brother who maybe sinned in a very gross way comes back to the Lord? Forgive him, comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. The repentant believer needs to know that when he returns to the Lord, his sins are forgiven. He is to be comforted, not criticized for what he did. And he needs to know that he is loved. He is to be loosed from the chains of discipline and set free to worship the Lord once again. When a repentant sinner returns to the Lord, this is the time to show tolerance and love. When a prodigal returns from the filth and muck of his sin, he needs to be embraced and brought back into fellowship of the believers. As we think of those who are still out of fellowship from Calvary, may the Lord grant repentance to every prodigal and may they be restored fully to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we think of this passage, we are grateful for your love for us. We are grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ and his desire to present to himself a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And Lord, we want to be alert to sin in our own lives and alert to sin in our midst not so much for condemnation, Lord, but rather for restoration, that we might see um, all of us walking in purity and holiness and in fellowship with each other and with you. We do ask, Lord, for those who have wandered from you, those who are still astray, and we ask you, Lord, to grant to them repentance, that they might turn from their sin and be restored fully to us and to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.